Welcome back, folks. Thank you for tuning in. You know, oftentimes in the blockchain community, people talk about centralization versus decentralization. And, you know, with healthcare blockchain companies, there seems to be a mix of different protocol choices. Some companies choose to use a private or permissioned blockchain uh, in part of their technology stack in order to ensure better security over sensitive health data. Some companies, like MedCredits, choose to be more decentralized, which can breed better communities and open marketplaces. So as we can see, there is this possible trade-off with how decentralized one would want to go, especially in healthcare. In this episode, I speak with Dr. James Todaro. He's the co-founder and CEO of MedCredits. And we talk about decentralization and his experience in the healthcare and blockchain community. It's an interesting episode. I hope you all enjoy it. I know I did. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today we have Dr. James Todaro. He is the founder, co-founder, and CEO of Med Credits. And uh, welcome to the show, James. No, thanks for having me, Ray. Yeah, and we're really excited to learn more about Med Credits and you know what your platform is doing on the blockchain. And so maybe you can kind of just give me a little bit of background, a little bit of a background of yourself, and then kind of how you started Med Credits. Sure, sure. So. I'm actually um, I'm a physician by training uh, in ophthalmology, and it was in medical school that I first learned about Bitcoin. So this was back in 2011, um, and thought it was a super neat technology. Didn't really know what to do with it besides, um, you know, I couldn't really do too much with it actually at the time. And uh, I was in my busiest year of medical school, so I just kind of ended up forgetting about it. Fast forward a couple of years later, my brother rediscovers Bitcoin and says, you know, this is super, you know, and I was like, yeah, I remember hearing about that, you know, what's been going on. And so, again, we couldn't really do much with it, but this time we were smart enough to actually invest in it uh, pretty heavily, which worked out uh, pretty well, but um, still couldn't do anything with it. Fast forward to Ethereum. And so um, Ethereum now allowed kind of more complex interactions between different parties, whereas Bitcoin is more of just a cash to cash system. And so... Once Ethereum became a robust enough network, I kind of got together a lot of my colleagues and they had already been, uh, we had all discussed Bitcoin and crypto in general years before. So they were all now very familiar with the space. And we all had, most of us had very strong healthcare backgrounds. My co-founder, Moshe, um, was a neurosurgery resident at Northwestern. Um, my brother, who's one of our other partners, dropped out of medical school to do this. So we had a pretty strong healthcare background. So we looked at it like, how can we take this technology and to make healthcare more efficient. And so this was back in the, in the end of 2016, and that's when we came up with MedCredits, um, which is essentially a global decentralized healthcare uh, marketplace that uh, uses the blockchain to connect uh, patients and doctors all around the world. Right, and, and currently I know that you have an existing app or a DAP decentralized application already available for testing, and there are actual doctors uh, using it at the, at the moment. Is that right? 
Um, so yeah, so partially. So we have so the DAP that we are coming out with right now. We're calling it Hippocrates. I'm probably not going to use Hippocrates for the rest of uh, of this interview because we're actually rebranding um, the name of the DAP in the next week or two. But essentially, there's a couple different layers to our platform. So on the very base layer, it's the Ethereum blockchain that we're using because we're a truly decentralized healthcare network. So you have to use a, a public blockchain for this. The next layer is going to be a token curated registry of physicians. So this is a decentralized global network of physicians that will then service the, the DAP or decentralized application layer of the platform. And any third party, any company, any developer on the world will be able to launch a DAP on this, this system that accesses this decentralized registry of physicians. We've created a few, we're in the process of creating a few different DAPs to uh, demonstrate the power of this uh, technology in this kind of global um, telemedicine market. And so the first one is going to be our dermatology app, which is going to be for skin disease. So any skin ailment you have, you will snap a photo, provide a few details, and then submit it on the DAP. And it goes to the, you use IPFS for decentralized storage of the, the medical information. It uses the Ethereum blockchain to guide the patient-physician encounter, which can go into a little bit more details about the validation, second opinions, um, in a little bit, if you'd like. Um, and, uh, and then front-end encryption along HIPAA-compliant uh, encryption curves, and basically the whole kind of uh, DAP um, developments necessary to connect a patient to a doctor or a doctor to doctor. And so that's what we've developed um, in that layer, is that dermatology DAP. And that's an open beta right now, so you can go to uh, hippocrates.medcredits.io, and anyone can test this. And we've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible, so it's not a specifically for you know people that are very familiar with blockchain and it's actually been great because we've gotten a lot of people to try it out that have no experience with blockchain because uh, we have about 20 dermatologists now that are ready to go um, that want to be on this uh, DAP uh, and and you know basically seeing seeing patients and providing consults to uh, to general practitioners or other doctors um, so we got a lot of energy on the doctor's front which is great mm-hmm. the one thing where I said where you're mostly uh, mostly right is we don't, it's not, uh, it does not yet have uh, real doctors on it providing real diagnoses. It's still in the testing phase. We have a beta testing. Uh, we're getting a lot of great feedback from the people that are using it. We have, we stopped counting, but I think we have over a few hundred cases now, the test cases that have been submitted on it. And we, you know, someone from the team will, or, you know, someone's kind of testing the network will respond to patient cases and stuff. Um, and that's going really well. And every about two to three weeks, we're releasing a new upgrade. Um, fixing any bugs, and this public beta was first released back in June, so a couple months ago, and um, and we'll be rolling out the uh, the one with actual doctors on it, um, and for for real cases, um, probably late in September, so so one month from now. I see, and you, I, you know, there's a lot there. So you mentioned yeah. how um, you know the platform is quite decentralized, like I think more decentralized than some of the other companies I've spoken with, especially because you're using IPFS, which for our audience, that's interplanetary uh, file system. And um, you're also using Ethereum, a lot of other ones as are as well. But can you talk to me about, you know, what are the advantages of decentralizing um, your platform? Sure, yeah. So, you know, the question, so, you know, to have a, a truly decentralized platform, but you hit the nail on the head, we're trying to be we want to be as decentralized as possible. And Which is hard because there's a lot of, you know, barriers to that. It's a slower, it might be more expensive, there's more development time. Yeah. So, develop, so yeah, you hit it. So, development-wise, we, you know, you break, 
you're we're breaking ground almost every step of the way because it's all you know brand new technology. Even Solidity development in general is is very early, and so you know putting together a team that can develop in Solidity and blockchain smart contracts and all that is, is very complicated. Then calling to the blockchain and, and you're exactly right. So decentralized development is very hard, um, and it's not you know very user friendly in, in general at this time. And making it user friendly is challenging, and there's certain lags and issues. So the question becomes so it's kind of twofold. So first of all, you know. If there's a centralized part to the application, then the overall application is not truly decentralized. Just like a, a chain, you know, if there's one weak link to the chain, then the whole chain is just as strong as, as that part. So if you're creating a decentralized system, in the sense of what Ethereum defines a decentralized system, so they say a censorship-resistant uh, DAP that cannot be you know, stopped by any third party or corrupted by any third party. And so if you're creating that, um, you really can't have any centralized points to the to the platform otherwise it's it's as decentralized as say uber is so uber is you know decentralized in the sense that anyone can be a cab driver but it's not a, a truly decentralized open source kind of global marketplace um, and so that's what we're trying to build and i think that's one of the differences uh, from us compared to maybe some of the other ones that are even using the blockchain out there so now the question is you know what what is the advantage to jumping through these hurdles to create this I think that what it's doing is it's kind of opening up a, a freer healthcare market uh, around the world. And, you know, there's, you know, some people would say that's valuable and some people would say it's, it's not. We, we, the reason we kind of got into, into Bitcoin um, and Ethereum and this whole space overall is because we think there is value to that, to a truly open um, global market for different things. And whether that is uh, finance or uh, prediction markets such as Augur, or healthcare, which is our experience, uh, we think that that will uh, make the overall system more efficient. So opening up a, a global network of doctors as opposed to just a centralized one that's maybe related to geographic area. And so I think that the decentralized aspect of it um, really comes into play also with uh, a lot of the regulation uncertainty. With any centralized company, there's a certain standards of care, there's certain um, kind of e regulatory uncertainties that companies can't really, you know, let the environment kind of evolve the way it, it might um, economically, you know, evolve into. And so, you know, our goal is to launch a platform that's, that's autonomous and able to evolve in the direction that serves a need for, for patients and doctors and anyone that interacts with the healthcare system. Yeah, and one of the features that you have on your, or that I read in your white paper is that you're allowing... Uh, something called a token curated registry to open up. So you're allowing physicians to basically um, register under this registry. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about the token curated registry? I just find that a little fascinating. Yeah. So token curated registries are actually a newer concept. They were first mentioned um, or uh, kind of conceptualized in a, in the form of a, a white paper back in September of 2017. And what it essentially is, it's a, um, a decentralized way to maintain a, a desired list of some kind. And this list can be anything from, from restaurants to colleges to physicians, for instance. And it's actually a very key part to creating, a, a, in our case, a truly decentralized healthcare marketplace. We do, you know, we do want this platform to have licensed physicians. I think that's safest for, for patients everywhere. And for you know general practice consults to physicians, and so you know by to to do that in a decentralized way though you have to have a, a registry and so then the question of, of physicians 
And the question becomes, well, who decides who's on that registry? If it's just, say, MedCredits or a centralized company, then again, the system's not decentralized. It's just us picking it, and, and you know, that's the way it is. We control mm-hmm. the system. If you come up with a, a way that to incentivize a community of people to, uh, to vet and uh, approve of which physicians or if physicians are on this registry and continue observing those physicians to make sure they're acting and behaving uh, honestly and, and overall benefiting the system, which is in the people monitoring the system's interest, then, um, then you can create a truly decentralized healthcare system. Um, and so that's what we're building. There's only been, I think, one token curated registry that's been released on Ethereum mainnet to date. Um, that's AdChain. Uh, Mike Golden uh, is working with them, and he's done a lot of great work on this space. Um, and we hope to be one of the second or third ones that launches, and we'll be launching our alpha actually on mainnet, or not on mainnet, but on testnet um, within the next you know, probably a few, several weeks. Hmm, very interesting. So how do you imagine that would work? So let's say I'm a physician uh, currently and I'm working at a hospital. I've been there for five years. I'm very comfortable where I am. What incentivizes me to also register with MedCredits? Sure. So I can tell you right now, a lot of um, the interest we're getting right now is from physicians is to just be involved in this space. For them, it's, you know, this blockchain is a new technology. If this is the uh, next wave of healthcare or future of healthcare, they want to be a part of it in some way. And so this can be starting off as a physician on the network, kind of exploring it, see how it works, you know, uh, do some cases, that kind of stuff. Down the road, the goal is for it to be where, um, you know, it's a way for a physician to uh, practice more autonomous care while at the same time receiving compensation for that. And so the first go-to-market strategy for our platform is telemedicine services. And so this will allow physicians um, who want to to make extra money um, to log in, to register uh, in our TCR, and then they can access an immediate pool of patients that are submitting cases throughout the day. Um, and so you're essentially almost logging into a uh, in a practice where you have an instant volume of patients. Ideally, again down the road once we have volume, um, and then you'll be able to get paid for those. And, and the consults can be something as quick as as three to four minutes. Um, on the platform, for instance, on our dermatology platform, uh, we've had it vetted by, you know, probably about, yeah, like I said, 20 dermatologists by now, and it takes, you know, three to four minutes to, to do a case. Interesting. So, you know, I was also reading about how you validate whether or not the cases or whether or not the doctors provide a, you know, a good enough um, diagnosis. So you want to talk a little bit about how that is developed, and, you know, the validation mechanisms you've developed? Sure, yeah. So again, it kind of goes back to uh, with these decentralized systems, how do you create a decentralized way for the game theory to work out so everyone's properly incentivized? And so what we came up with was kind of a discounted second opinion method, whereby really a patient, interesting. Yeah. yeah, whereas a patient submits a case and pays um, upfront, they, they submit an additional fee to the smart contract. Now, if they just want that first opinion, they get that first opinion back and, you know, it makes sense, they have a rash, it'll go away, it's poison ivy, whatever, then they say accept and then they get a, they're essentially like a rebate or refund of, of five medics. So this, I'm just using these numbers, it's going to change down the road, but five medics. If, however, let's say the patient gets a report back and let's say it sounds serious, it um, doesn't sound right, maybe poison ivy and the guy's like, I live in New York, I haven't gone out in the woods in, you know, months. I mean, what are you talking about? 
mm-hmm. or something just doesn't seem right with it, then the patient can opt for a second opinion. So they say obtain a second opinion. And the way it works is it now goes to a totally different doctor. It cannot be examined again by the same doctor. And that second doctor doesn't know whether he or she is the first or second doctor examining the patient. And the game theory is such that if the diagnoses between the two don't match in a general class, where it should be where, you know, most of these diagnoses would go hand in hand together, then the patient gets a refund and the doctors don't get the full, uh, the full payment for the, uh, for the diagnosis. And so this is a way to incentivize doctors to perform accurate diagnoses while also giving patients the option now, since they got 10 medics back that say, and only paid a very small fee overall for that because it technically wasn't quite fair to the patient because now they have two conflicting opinions. So now they have the option to either um, resubmit to the network, which let's say as the network becomes more robust, maybe that's a good idea, you get a third or fourth opinion. Or maybe at that stage it's, you know, depending on what the diagnosis that came back, maybe I should just go see my local provider. And so it kind of provides the patient with some uh, insight on that. So how does a second provider know that he's not the second provider in the system? Because well, from what I understand, the second provider will be getting paid a different amount as well. It'll right. be half, 50% of the original right. cost. So the the doctor, um, just on the on the front end, the doctor can't see whether he or she. So to the doctor, when they're pulling this case from the, the queue or when they're receiving this case, they have no idea if this is a second or first opinion. Um, so that's a way to do it because the second doctor is going to get paid a, uh, a reduced amount no matter what. And so if a doctor knew that they were the, the second opinion, then in theory, and this is again assuming a nefarious doctor, they could just submit anything because it doesn't matter because they know they're going to get um, their money back. And there's going to be a way that people are going to, so down the road, this this mechanism could change a little bit. And there might be other ways to flag a doctor that's maybe not giving the best advice or guidance to patients, where patients will probably be able to report something to the TCR, to the physician registry, and the, the patient themselves will be able to flag that doctor and say, hey, this doctor provided it. And then if they the, the, the decentralized community monitoring this TCR seems that there's been a number of times a specific position has been flagged, they could remove that position from the registry and the, the position would then forfeit their deposit. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I feel like, you know, once the application is out there and there's more users and you start collecting data, that data will kind of help drive those, you know, models and new decisions. Exactly. So, you know, one thing, you know, people a lot of times with these early systems want, you know, every single thing to be solved. And the thing is, everything evolves, even with, even with Bitcoin. Sure. It's evolved dramatically the last 10 years. It started off where it's a peer-to-peer cash system, if you read Satoshi's white paper. And now all you hear is, you know, it's a store of value versus a medium of exchange. And, and so it's, you know, even Bitcoin itself is still evolving on where its place is, where does it capture value, and similar with a lot of these different platforms. And so I think the, the goal is to have a good go-to-market strategy and have a, a big enough market that actually needs the blockchain or token and then kind of figure out the fundamentals and then continue to evolve and, and, and pay close attention to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like uh, being able to adapt and uh, is going to be the key to surviving into the, in this marketplace. Oh, for um, sure. Blockchain, so it's, it, it evolves very rapidly. Um, I think that sometimes, though, at the same time, people sometimes expect the development to, to evolve much more rapidly than it actually does. Uh, I feel like a lot of uh, people expect that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's still software development. It takes time, and it's in a brand new technology. And like I said, these decentralized systems, they take time to develop. So you just, people have to have patience. You can't, there's a lot of stuff out there that, that I would agree does not provide much value and is probably not even, doesn't even need the blockchain. Um, but there are a few 
gems out there, and I like to think that MegaFest is one of them, uh, where it truly needs a blockchain and um, and it's being developed in a in a way to to capture that market. Yeah, and and another thing is a lot of these companies are, you know, showing project timelines that are pretty aggressive and pretty um, you know just amazing how fast they think they can start implementing their their product into the, like the entire world. You know, like global. Yeah, care forever. <laughs> it's so, so I, I wear kind of two hats. So I'm also, I, like I said, I invested in Bitcoin a long time ago. So I've I've invested in a number of companies, and uh, read hundreds of white papers and timelines and seen all that as well. So it's it's a, it's a little bit of a tough game because the investor, the say the investors, the people buying tokens, want to see this stuff come out in the very near future. When you're buying a token, a lot of times you're not sitting there saying, oh, okay, um, let's see how this looks in 2019 or 2020. And so the companies then feel that if they don't give that idea to the people that are buying tokens, then no one will buy a token. Or if they say, oh, the next product release will be in the end of 2019 or 2020, then the, you know, the token value could crash if it's already on a market, let's say. So it's... You know, what I would encourage is the people that own tokens as well as the uh, kind of the token, the, the founders of the companies to reach some, some medium of kind of realistic expectations and what can be done, how long it takes to actually capture a market and, um, and give these things some time to actually really truly develop and start, start gaining traction. Yeah, and hopefully the, I guess, like intelligent investors are um, ones that have been in the game for a while you know, uh, we'll understand that software takes time to develop, so they won't harshly judge the ones that you know promised something in 2019 or whatever, like you said. Yep, and I think that the I think that it's because this space is maturing. It's you're you're getting, even the people that maybe were not sophisticated investors a year or two ago. I think they're becoming um, more knowledgeable about how these things work, and so um, yeah, I think that'll just continue to evolve and, and progress over time, hopefully. So what do you think has been the most difficult thing that investors have been asking you? Um, you know, realistically, we've just been focusing on development pretty heavily for the last six or seven months. It's been fantastic. You know, there's, you know the, it's, been a, it's been a bear market, right? Yeah. <laughs> for the last eight months. For anyone that's invested in crypto in general right now, um, a lot of people, it's, it's been a tough eight months. You know, for us, it's been a very busy eight months. Um, instead of focusing on, on price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any of those other investments, mm-hmm. you know, we've been focusing a lot on development. And so we've been releasing those updates and letting our community know what we've been accomplishing and encouraging our community to, to try out our products and give us feedback. Um, so it can be more of a part of it, and we're trying to be open in that way. Yeah, no, I totally understand. And I think that's the right approach to it. I think the next even few years, you know, the last time the price of Bitcoin and all the different uh, major coins went up was like about three, four years ago and then it crashed and then we had a bear market for another three, four years or something like that. Yep. And I imagine it'd be similar situation this time around until yep. we get to the Bitcoin reward having block. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a, that's another thing is people, just from an investment standpoint, people expect things to, to reverse very quickly. <laughs> They don't remember that. So when you know, I remember in twenty in the end of twenty thirteen when when Bitcoin crashed and Bitcoin's price actually didn't recover until over three years later. So even though it started climbing again in in the end of two thousand fifteen, 
it didn't actually reach its its previous high until early 2017. Um, and so it, it takes some time. And so for the people that are sitting there hoping Bitcoin's going to hit fifty thousand dollars by the end of this year, if you actually look at what that that chart would look like, you know, it, it's kind of unrealistic. It's not the same as the you know the bull market that was going on in in the end of 2016 and 2017. We're now you know, there's a major correction, and I think there's going to be a, another slow phase of growth leading up to maybe perhaps another rally like that. But I think that you know the best thing to do at this time, you know, if you are a if you're interested in building this space, keep building. You know, keep working on it. Don't don't lose faith in the in the in this market. And then, uh, as an investor, you know, mm-hmm. choose choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. So, and also, like nobody, none of us are licensed uh, financial advisors. So don't take no, any no, of no, this no, not a financial at all. Exactly. That's a good point. Uh, not all a financial grain advisor. of salt. We're just chatting here, everybody. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. <laughs> um. Yeah, so let's get to the development conversation. I'm actually curious, what is like? How big is your team at the moment, and um, what are they primarily focused on? Sure. Yeah. So we have um, there's five of us that, that founded this. The kind of the core team is what we call it. That founded this um, this the company and the platform, and we have um, five developers that are working on it. So two are full time, and then three are, are part time developers. Um, and what's kind of simultaneously building out the token curated registry as well as the application layer because um, you know both of them are important. The t- token curated registry is what powers the system, and then the the app layer is what allows the system be, to be utilized. Um, so uh, lately, we've been doing a large push for our uh, the dermatology app, and we're also actually developing an ophthalmology app and then a general medicine app as well. Uh, so that there's kind of going to be a multitude of specialties uh, available for uh, for use on the application layer, uh, but that's what we've been doing a lot of focus on because we've been getting a lot of great feedback from community. Excuse me, testing this, and um, and so yeah, we're, once we roll that out, we're going to uh, really ramp up our, our efforts on the the token curated registry so we can get that as well shortly. Uh, get that out shortly thereafter. So. I remember you were talking about the token curator registry and how you're going to have some sort of nodes or a community of people that are incentivized to properly uh, say this doctor is, you know, correctly registered with this state. How do you actually, how do they, who are these people? And um, are there any kind of state regulations that you have to work with, work around? So the, you know, the state regulations are, so... The people monitoring this network are going to be the MedEx token holders. So they're the ones that basically have the power and are going to be incentivized to be monitoring this system. And in return, they're going to receive a, a reward uh, for their work, almost like Bitcoin mining or staking tokens and other systems. When it comes down to the regulation, so the U.S. is a little bit interesting because it has all those interstate regulations where doctor one state can't legally provide medical advice or uh, diagnosis recommendation to a patient other state unless they're board certified in both states or they've uh, there's some reciprocity between the states so it's a, a you know if in the you know it's not very conducive for telemedicine for sure and regulation is currently in in the process i think you actually know probably even maybe a little bit more about the subject than i do but um Regulation is currently in the process of making that more friendlier for physicians to be credentialed different states because you know it's really I think it's a, a it's a roadblock at this point to to physicians getting onboarded for telemedicine and I think that that will likely be changing over time. 
Now, the way our system is going to be set up, because we don't want a doctor to, let's say, in one state to accidentally provide uh, medical guidance to a patient, let's say, in another state without being credentialed. Mm -hmm. So our system is going to have a way to, um, it's going to basically, uh, physicians will be able to choose, and patients as well, to be able to choose what geographic areas they want their physician to come from. And so that way we won't have any uh, kind of cross-mixing in that. Now, interesting, though, on telemedicine front, you know, some telemedicine companies are, they, they're, they're doing essentially like a curbside consult from a specialist to a general practitioner on a step. So it's not a directly a patient that's, um, that's accessing the application, but it's more the patient goes to their general practitioner and let's say with a skin problem and dermatology is a very specialized field. So a lot of general practitioners, you know, might not know what to do with the skin problem. And so that general practitioner can then take a photo of it, provide some of the, the patient's complaints, and then submit it to a telemedicine app. And centralizer companies are already doing this as, uh, um, already. Um, and then say, you know, if you had a patient that had something look like this and this problem, you know, what, what would you do about it? And so then the dermatologist could say, oh, well, if I had this patient with this problem, you know, I, would, I could treat it with this or I would observe it with this. And so that these centralized companies are actually doing across state borders, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, so the provider to provider service, right? It's a little bit lower liability risk than directly communicating with patients, right? I guess also, like my question really was, um, how are you going to validate that the doctors are actually licensed where they say? They oh, are? gotcha. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. So that so it's going to be so this so the physicians going to basically all the credentials that are. Um, are they going to submit some information like while they're exactly. getting into the registry? Here's my here's proof. Exactly. Here's my certificate. But exactly. how do we how do you validate? Are you is there an online government like? So you can look up so the MPI number provider. that can be looked up. Exactly. An MPI right. that's all publicly available. Um, medical license numbers. Um, you can you know there's different national databases and in, in other countries as well where you can look up and see there's a physician. So we're going we're using Civic um, right now, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with Civic, but they mm-hmm. do some identity stuff. And so what we're doing is the physicians are registering with Civic, and so that way you are um, confirming. So Civic's doing the work of confirming that that is a person at such address from a certain country, and then our app will be, and then the TCR will be the next layer where it verifies that that is a physician. So if you know who that person is, their address, and now you know their license number credentialing. You can look that up and mass, match that with national databases and see that, oh, yes, you know, Dr. James Tadaro, which, you know, myself, is a registered ophthalmologist in, in the state of Michigan in the USA, um, which you can look that up and it's, it's publicly available. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Today's article is from healthdatamanagement.com. Mount Sinai Health System is looking to take a lead role in finding ways that healthcare can use emerging blockchain solutions. The New York-based integrated delivery system has launched the Center for Biomedical Blockchain Research to solve healthcare challenges using technology that underlies the Bitcoin cryptocurrency and provides a data structure that can be timestamped and signed using a private key. The Center for Biomedical Blockchain Research will be headed by Joel Dudley, Executive Vice President of Precision Health at Mount Sinai and Director of the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare, and Noah Zimmerman, 
Assistant Professor of Genetics and Genomic Sciences and Director of the Health Data and Design Innovation Center. Joel Dudley says, we expect that some early use cases could emerge from areas where existing systems and approaches fall short. The fragmented nature of regional and global healthcare systems prevent the flow of vital information and creates barriers to access the underserved groups. This shows that health systems are also interested in utilizing blockchain technology to improve their operations. A link to the article will be in the show notes. And now back to the conversation with Dr. James Todaro. I, I would like to kind of ask you a little bit about DAOs. And I know that you know, you're trying to build a decentralized um, you know, this organization that doesn't require human intervention to just continue to operate. And uh, to you, you think that's an advantage, right? You don't have mm-hmm. to worry about censorship. No one can stop the software from running. Uh, but there are other companies who think that a permission blockchain would be more valuable in healthcare. Sure. So what would be your argument against uh, having a permissioned type of blockchain? Um, For at so, least, because every layer in your stack seems to be, or, or intends to be, at least at this time, decentralized. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I guess what I would, what I would say is, you know, what is the, um, you know, what is the true advantage to having a uh, permissioned blockchain what is it because at the end of the day the the blockchain itself is just is a is a ledger and it's kind of a way to have a, a decentrally maintained ledger so what is you know i guess what is the advantage to having a private blockchain that just one company controls i mean my guess is what i've heard is that let's say there is some uh, nefarious activity going on and someone's private key gets compromised and now you know basically their all their information or their assets are taken away and now if you had a permissioned blockchain that would be less likely the risk is lower uh, sure, for something yeah. like that happening but yep. again you're with that lower risk you're also increasing the amount of um, control there's other central parties that can control your account potentially freeze your account what, what have you yeah so um, yeah so so that that part is is true just like with with you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, if you send your Bitcoin to the wrong address or someone gets your private keys, you know, you're in a world of hurt. You're not, you know, calling up your local branch manager and saying, okay, give me my insured money back. I think that as the space develops, there'll be, which there are actually companies working on this now, where having ways to recover um, accounts or um, if you lose your private key, for instance, having kind of multi, uh, multi-party uh, access to accounts and that kind of stuff. So that is continuing to to develop to provide kind of more uh, safety nets for people that are losing this stuff. So I think that as time goes on, that will improve. But I guess kind of overall, you know, just the idea of a permission blockchain, I just, you know, as an investor, my question is, how is this actually making the system, you know, more efficient or better? You know, and What's because as a... Right. Yeah, What's the I mean, difference between that, a permission blockchain, and just a, a regular database, almost, in a way? Right. I mean, that's that would be my question. I think that you know, there's been a lot of hype with with mm. Bitcoin um, and blockchain in general over the last year or two, and I think that you know, watching it go from very few people, sun's kind of coming in and out on me right now. It's all right. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think there's a as we saw with the ICO bubble in in 2017 and even early into this year. You know, you, a blockchain doesn't fit for everything, and that's why a lot of these these companies have lost ninety, you know, ninety their tokens have lost ninety, ninety five percent of their value. 
I think we're going to continue to see that as the case. Um, and it seems to me that time and time again, the platforms that are actually con- uh, capturing value and continuing to grow are the ones that are actually decentralized, which that's kind of taking full advantage of the technology of the blockchain. The blockchain was not created to be a very efficient centralized ledger. It was created to be a uh, somewhat inefficient, actually decentralized ledger. Is any part of your development or software at the moment, is it under any kind of patents? Nope. No. So, you know, our goal is to make this open source. Once we have a footing in the marketplace and we're starting to get adoption and kind of recognized as uh, one of the first movers in the, in the market, we're going to open source the, the technology. And our goal is actually we want others to use this technology. We want others to um, build dApps that access the API to the TCR and, and continue to grow the network that way. So we have no interest in, in patenting this technology. Yeah, again, with many things blockchain related, the size of your network is really, you know, it helps to calculate the value of your network as well in many cases. And I think that, you know, if it's open sourced, you'll be able to grow a lot faster. And not in all cases, but in general cases, I think that's true. So Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on, uh, you know, the way the token, you know, is able to, able to capture value as well. I think that, um, you know, something that people are coming to realize now is, just because a certain network, even if a platform did grow, that doesn't always necessarily mean that the token will capture the value of that. So you know, it's something that you have to look at and say, okay, so even if the network grows, how does the, the token itself become kind of more valuable or um, kind of more in part of the system? Or is it just a payment token where it's just simply a form of payment on the, on the app? And those have kind of, those are probably majority of the ICOs actually in 2017. And most of them have lost a lot of their value as people come to realize that a payment token actually is not capturing uh, the value of the network. Right. Um, that's true. So moving along to jump topics here a little bit, I kind of want to know more about your experience as a you know surgeon physician. What has, what have you learned from medical school that's helped you in this uh, endeavor here with med credits? <laughs> so that's a good question. It's given me an appreciation for some of the inefficiencies with the healthcare system today. Um, both while, so in medical school, you are trained from the earliest of days of, of standard of care. Um, you know, honestly, there's the underlying defensive medicine aspect um, to your training, whereby you're constantly looking at the, uh, the legal uh, regulatory environment, liability uh, you know, aspects of care, um, which I think is unfortunate. I think that a doctor in general should be trying to provide the best uh, care possible for the patient uh, with their training, using the best tools available. As a resident um, in ophthalmology, I think that I, I saw better hand, because when you're, when you're seeing 30, 40 patients a day, you really start to notice the inefficiencies of the system. And a lot of it stems from some of these kind of bureaucratic uh, regulatory environments that are created by people that aren't actually even using the system. And I've seen this with the kind of medical records. Um, you know, I think a lot of institutions and um, hospitals and even in private offices are very reluctant to, to switch over to electronic medical records. And, and that's why, you know, decades after computers are in every home, these institutions are just finally switching away. And actually a lot of private offices are still using paper charts. And, the ones that have switched over 
are realizing that they have all these meaningful use requirements and mm -hmm. complex and you're clicking throughout the whole time. And so you're stuck in a situation where you have to see more patients. You have to gather more information from those patients. And then the patients, you, you still want to make eye contact with the patients. Right. <laughs> and so even with, with scribes and assistants and all that, it's, it's a very kind of inefficient process. And I think that it would be better served if it was more in control of the people that are actually using the system um, or at least a lot more input from those people or a lot more autonomy in their mm -hmm. care. And so that's what I hope that this system, you know, MedCredits will evolve to, will be able to provide that environment where um, you know, it's able to explore those ways to be more efficient or to provide better care as opposed to restrictions and some, and some kind of just blanket laws that may not apply to every patient. Even if they apply or they're beneficial for patients overall, it's not, it's, at the end of the day, it's not going to be the best for every patient or every physician or every practice setting. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. You make me think about, you know, people talk about personalized medicine and personalized therapies using genetics as a way to have more targeted approaches to medicine in general. But there's also personalized medicine in the legal aspect of it. Each, Not each person, you know, um, some people are more open to experimental diagnoses than others. For example, I wouldn't call it experimental diagnoses. I don't know how you. Well, you're you're exactly it. right. I mean, some some, and that kind of goes for both levels. Is some patients are more open to having, you know, and it depends on their quality of life, what they're looking for out of life. Which every patient is not the exact same in that. Some, you know, if they have a terminal diagnosis, then they're okay and come to terms with, let's say, the standard of care, which is no more treatment and spending time with their family and whatever. But other people at the same time. Well, are, are fighters. They want to do everything possible. And whether that gives them hope or whether that's um, maybe potentially they will have, you know, find that treatment or that rare case where they actually do uh, successfully recover. You know, and, and uh, kind of blanket regulation that kind of will often stifle those chances for those patients or providing that kind of personalized medicine that you said. And from a doctor's perspective, it's, it's challenging because you're always taught to do the standard of care. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you deviate from the standard of care, you're essentially opening yourself up to, to liability. And, you know, I'd like to think that as a physician, so I no longer actually practice clinical medicine anymore. I'm doing, um, the, I'm doing this full time for my credits. But, um, you know, I'd like to think that if I was still practicing uh, clinical care, I'd always want to give the patients what I think was the, the, the safest, but at the same time, the best treatment or therapy that aligned with their goals. And I think that's, that's kind of truly personalized medicine and that's what I hope to see healthcare become, you know, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like you said, there's still a lot of paperwork that doctors are doing and that's increasing. Uh, there's more information that they need to input in the computer, takes time away from, you know, eye to eye contact. What do you think about the use of artificial intelligence and how is that going to play a role in the way that doctors and patients communicate in the future? That's very interesting. So we get that question a good amount, actually, in, you know, specifically related to med credits, because it's you're building a decentralized platform. So almost the next step is, you know, some type of uh, you know, artificial intelligence system that's integrated with it. And so um, to kind of step away from that for one second regarding med credits, so a lot of people are asking us, you know, well, you on this decentralized network, let's say for the dermatology app you'll have all these images and diagnoses matched with them on this network that patients control. 
would do you think that at some point uh you know uh a combat development company would be able to access those images and those diagnoses and then create an algorithm where it became automated where patients were automatically diagnosed based on the images that they submit and stuff and you know our answer to that is as long as the patients are are open to uh, releasing these data identified information and likely form a system whereby they can loan out their data in, in essence where a patient has this whole medical record it can be de-identified and then uh, accessed by let's say a research company or development company in some safe responsible manner um, and then the patient get paid for that data so no longer is your your medical record just kind of being used by whomever and you're not really sure but now it's something that the patient can control and actually end up retrieving some of the, maybe their their money from the system back on that. Um, and I think that, um, so that's kind of how artificial intelligence might, you know, people have different definitions for artificial intelligence, but um, might integrate with, with med credits early on. Um, artificial intelligence, I think, overall in medicine is, is going to improve patient care, um, and it's going to find that balance between personalized medicine and artificial intelligence. I think there's times where, um, artificial uh, on one extreme, artificial intelligence um, could provide health, uh, you know, helpful alternatives, and then taking one step from that telemedicine, where it's more of a video chat like what we're doing now, or um, store and forward, where you're sending images back and forth and communicating that way, and then all the way down to to traditional office visits, where you're sitting with your physician and you're on the you know on the exam bed, um, and I think there's a different different solution for everyone at this point. I think the younger generation. Uh, tends to prefer, some, prefer something that's quicker uh, and faster and kind of results, especially mm -hmm. people with busier lives. And then um, the older generations kind of still want to see that, that contact with a physician. And, um, you know, so, you know, our goal is to provide a system that it gives you know, people more options to have the kind of care that they want that fits their life. And again, that kind of goes to personalized medicine. So maybe personalized medicine for a, a 25 year old on Wall Street is something as simple as you know sending a picture and some some things and that's that's what they want that's what personally fits them <laughs> yeah I totally and I think that being able to experiment and have multiple market marketplaces opening up and uh, using blockchain as the backbone of that technology makes it really easy for um, having all these options I think that we have so many options for the way we want to uh, be treated or be seen by a doctor nowadays, it's pretty incredible. And I feel like the next three to five years, we're going to have, you know, double the options. Um, Hopefully it keeps increasing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how there's a limited number of doctors, for example, in the United States, and there's a shortage of nurses and a lot of other healthcare providers. That's why I mentioned like how artificial intelligence can maybe help supplement some of those. And teledermatology is, is a great application of that. So I feel like it's an interesting choice as a first application. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm very interested to see how that goes, and we'll be following it for sure. Yep. And, yeah, and so that's, I mean, yeah, with the baby boomers uh, getting, getting older, um, they, uh, yeah, in the U.S., we have a, a physician shortage. And so that's one of the the other aspects of the MedCreds platform is connecting uh, kind of patients to doctors or ability to, to hear from a specialist in, in other countries or so maybe in areas where there's not a, a shortage of physicians, um, at least to get that kind of first or second opinion. Interesting. What do you think about the rate of adoption in blockchain technology overall? And then um, tell me a little bit how you think, when do you think healthcare will catch up to what's happened in finance, for example? 
Sure. So I think that adoption, kind of like what I was saying earlier, is it's, it takes time, um, whether it's blockchain or not. I think blockchain moves quickly in creating these um, social networks or kind of financial networks where people are now incentivized to where they can kind of profit off the system somehow. And so it's attracted a lot of attention very quickly uh, before adoption has actually occurred. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's progressing at the rate that I would honestly expect. It's, um, you know, like I said earlier, people kind of are expecting it to go much more quickly, but realistically this stuff takes time. I mean, Augur, um, kind of the first decentralized prediction market has been in development for three and a half years and it was just launched uh, back in, I think, May of this year, so a couple months ago. Um, and even that, people will say, oh, there's only 30 or 40 daily active users on it. It's, it's a flop. This stuff takes time. I mean, um, the other prediction markets that came out before Augur that were centralized, they, they took years before they started to gain traction. Um, I think that yeah, it's progressing at the at the rate that I would expect. And regarding healthcare in particular, I think that that's something that is very interesting. When you mentioned the kind of permissioned blockchain, so there's a lot of there's a lot. I know a number of healthcare companies that are using permissioned blockchains to um, somehow maybe make uh, processing electronic medical records easier or storing electronic medical records. But let's so let's think about that for a second. So. These hospital institutions just switched over to electronic medical records, to computers in general, uh, a few to several years ago. And now blockchain, which is this whole new thing that pe most people didn't even know of a year or two ago, these very uh, legacy s infrastructure systems, when are they going to switch over to electronic, some, some permission blockchain electronic medical records? Is that... Is that going to be soon when they just switched over from, you know, they just switched to computers in general not too long ago? So, I, you know, my question is, you know, wh what time frame are you talking for this? And I think that the way to actually get adoption much quicker in, in, in healthcare is by creating an environment that allows that to grow. So it's not by slightly optimizing the current system, by having a uh, blockchain system that somehow keeps track of where the medical records are and verifying whether they were changed or not, but by creating a system that directly provides value to the people using the system. So we're able to provide a, a marketplace where doctors can provide a care to patients and receive some economic value from that. Or maybe it's uh, something that they just like the, the, you know, it's cool. Mm -hmm. A lot of things like a lot of people, especially young doctors might want to do this initially because it's cool. And then on the other hand, patients, if they have more affordable access to care that they maybe didn't even have access to or couldn't afford before, then, then I think there's the, the rate of adoption will be a lot quicker because you don't have to change those legacy uh, infrastructure systems that have been in place for years. You're now just providing, providing the users uh, what they want. Yeah, that's true. But I think there's also other barriers. For example, uh, let's say a doctor is using your platform in a few years and they're getting paid in med credits, which can convert into fiat money if they wanted to or into Bitcoin, whatever they choose. Um, you know, that's not, it's going to be like, how do they report that? Do they need to report that? Um, there's a lot of institutional processes that are already in place that the hospital takes care of or your, you know, HR department takes care of. And I think that right now, even, you know, we've seen with Uber and the Uber drivers, they had to train all their Uber drivers on how to file their own taxes and things like that. So there's a lot of those assumptions that we've already made about how our income is going to come in um, that 
you know, we have to forget about those assumptions now when we're starting to think about the um, token world. So I think that's going to yeah. be another barrier. Yeah. So we actually so a couple of thoughts on that. So with the the payment to doctors, it's actually going to be in a in a stable token. So the value of our mm -hmm. platform or of Med of MedCredit Semedics token comes from that that token curated registry. So it's not actually going to be used as a form of payment. Which is, I just want to address that because a lot of people ask, well, there's going to be there's volatility with these tokens. You know, how is a doctor able to predict what you know income they're having from this or you know patients paying um, in the lag time and stuff? And so um, by uh, by paying in a stable token, which is something that's pegged to some fiat currency like the U.S. dollar, for instance, you're now controlling for that. In regards to uh, processing and payment, I think infrastructure will develop around that. But remember. In the centralized systems that exist today, you know that HR department or that billing department, it's not free. You're paying. You're paying for that as well. Um, it's yeah. all part of your overhead and your practice. And ophthalmology overhead is usually, oftentimes, greater than fifty percent. If you're in an academic institution, uh, even for a specialized practice like ophthalmology, overhead can be up to eighty, eighty-five percent. So eighty, eighty-five percent of what you actually collect in billings is going toward that HR department billing. Um, the practice or the company overall, the institution overall. And so, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't come for free. And so I think there's gonna be ways to make that system more efficient as well. Hmm. Interesting. How is, uh, so I do know that you, you know, started this company with your brothers, actually two of your brothers. So it was, it's two of my brothers and my, my classmate from medical school. Actually. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. He and I, uh, we met during the first, during orientation actually at medical school. And so we've been, uh, close colleagues, uh, you know, ever since then for the last seven, eight years. Um, and then my two brothers, yeah, Joe and How, John. How's it been like working with your brothers on this endeavor? So it's been fantastic. So one of the things that is super important, which if you talk with any, uh, you know, venture capitalists and all this, they always want to know what's the team dynamics, right? You know, how is this a team that's going to stick together that gets along well? And it's, you know, frankly, it's very important. It's important to have open communication with your team and, to be able to have that honest dialogue with your team. And so our core team consists of, you know, my two brothers, close friend, and then actually Brian Cody, who's my brother-in-law as well. So it's a very tight-knit group. We each bring different skills uh, to the table. And, you know, one of the greatest benefits is we all are super open with one another, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, and uh, and all of us have pretty thick skin, so we can take criticism well and, and keep moving forward. And uh, so that's that's been great. And it's also... You know, we have we're in similar areas geographically as well, so that's helpful as well. Absolutely. Can you kind of share maybe one or two examples of an argument or kind of not argument, but a debate you might have had around med credits that you had to make a decision on and how you got there? Sure. Um, gosh, there's been a lot of there's a lot of debates. <laughs> I'm sure um, on different directions, everything from from marketing to um, to, to kind of development directions. Like this is a again a completely novel space with a lot of different directions you can go. And so for any kind of big decision, um, we always discuss it as as a whole team. And there's honestly there's no, no there's not a uh, you know kind of an ex executive decision where it's like, okay, I'm, you know, making this so far to date, we've always had kind of a majority consensus on a direction we're going with. Um, to think of it, a specific example. I, I don't, um, 
I can't come up with one on the top of my head because there's, there's just so many. There's like sure, certain sure. development, you know, decisions that we make and, you know, what's the best way to capture value in the system? Um, you know, who are we marketing this to? Even the decision of, because initially we started off where we we're going to be marketing this primarily to, to patients. But now we've kind of, you know, moved a little bit away from that where it seems like it's actually going to capture a lot more value and actually go to market a lot more quickly by marketing it to the doctors and then these um, these these developers that are going to build on top of our system. And so we, we discussed that, that and, you know, some of us were a little reluctant to think if that was a direction because we we're kind of changing gears a little bit in that aspect. But then overall, in the end, I think we all we all agreed on this and, and are moving in that direction now. I see. So can you share maybe some of the competitive pressures you're feeling in the space right now? Like what other blockchain companies are, you know, what they're trying to do, how they compare to you? Sure. Um, you know, it's so we've been in in this space for probably longer than most of the other blockchain health companies out there, um, just in you know, and our core team just experience in blockchain, uh, first of all, so since we've been in since 2013, and then also uh, kind of working on med credits. So we've been working on med credits since 2016. So we've, you know, done a lot of work in the system. We're getting much closer to a real launch where, again, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's very few applications that are actually out there, uh, especially on mainnet, um, Ethereum mainnet, that are open to real, real use and adoption. And so I think that a lot of our competitors are are further away on that aspect. And the ones that are closer, they're, you know, they're, what they've essentially done is they've taken a centralized company and in some way, and they created a token for that centralized company hmm. and then um, sold that token and are now somehow trying to figure out a way where that token integrates with their centralized system. So at the end of the day, it's, you know, I would say that we're, we're, I'd say we're the most decentralized healthcare platform out there. If you're looking for, if you're looking to, for a, a truly decentralized open healthcare marketplace, then it's it's med credits. Everyone else, we're the only ones developing a token curated registry, for instance, uh, for physicians. Which how do you know you can't really have a decentralized network without that? And so, you know, I suspect that once we open source our, our TCR. There's going to be a number of these other companies that are that may, if they want to be decentralized, will be integrating that into their system as well. Hopefully, they'll just use our TCR and access our patients and build and build DApps on top of our platform, which would be great. And then they would be they would have a you know an application layer to it, and and that'd be that'd be great. And we'd, so we'd happy be, to be working with any of those companies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you know building your community out where the TCR grows large enough where people won't want to create another one. You know, they'll exactly. just use yours. It makes a lot. How do you, so how do you actually manage that community right now? I know you have a Telegram account. You have, you know, Twitter, Facebook, probably all these different venues. Yep. What's been your experience like with the community? Um, so I think this is across the board. A lot of communities have downsized <laughs> pretty tremendously since, uh, you know, since late 2017, for instance. There's a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of activity back in that time. And, and every Telegram channel, I think, has seen um, uh, much less activity now than those days, which there's good and bad. So the, the bad is, it's, you know, oh, you know, is this project dead? But I think if people dig into some of these projects, including ours a little bit more, you realize it's, it's not dead. The team's actually been very busy developing and releasing something. And it also allows, you know, it removes a lot of the noise that's in the system, both on Twitter, 
or as people like to call it, crypto Twitter, um, and and on the Telegram, where you no longer have people just always saying when ICO or you know when listing on exchange, right. you know, when Binance, when Bitrex or whatever. You have the people that are actually when moon <laughs> exactly when moon. Um, it's the people that are interested in seeing this out kind of more long term. Uh, or they're interested in the technical aspects of the platform. How are you building this? We're just very curious in, to the system overall, um, as opposed to the people that are just looking you know, for a get-rich-quick scheme. Interesting. Well, I wonder, uh, is there any like questions that you might have liked to answer I might have missed? Anything you want to tell the audience that you find important right now in the healthcare space overall, and may, or maybe specifically with med credits, or just the whole idea of decentralization Versus centralization, because I think I think that's a really fascinating topic we could talk for hours about, but I don't want to, you know. Sure. Yeah, I think. I mean, honestly, I think you've hit a lot of um, a lot of the key points. A lot of the, you know, we've covered a lot of ground in the last uh, last hour. Um, for people, I would have to say, if I were to give a take home message, it would be to, you know, if you're interested in this space and watching these things build, ask yourself. Or engage with the community, engage with the the team, or and read the white paper, and kind of do your own research to find out, you know, why is this technology actually necessary here? Is the is the blockchain truly needed for this this system for what they're building? Can it be done in a centralized way? Because honestly, if it's done in a centralized way, it might be quicker and more efficient at the end of the day. Um, in some cases, is it you know? If you're looking to buy tokens, which some people are, again, I'm not a financial advisor by any means, but you know, you should try to figure out what the value capture of that token is. You can't just simply say that I'm going to own a token, and so that's going to, you know, if this network becomes more robust, then that token goes up in value. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, do research, talk. You know, the, the, this communities are, are, you know, a lot of the noise has died down now. You can talk with developers. You can talk. Some of these people that you're talking, you may be talking to today, could be the next, you know, Zuckerberg or whatever. You know, it's like, true. It's Zuckerberg's true. good or bad now. I don't know whether you want to be him or not. But you, you're, you know, if you're in this space, you're probably talking to the next, you know, some of the next Bill Gates or. Steve Jobs or Zuckerberg, et cetera. And so take advantage of that while you're in this space when it's when it's quiet. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's really exciting. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot. And I hopefully our audience has learned a little bit too about med credits and decentralized healthcare microplaces. Um, thank you again, James. Appreciate it. Hope you can join us again one day in the future so we can follow your progress. Awesome, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to, I think what you're doing here with Health and Chain is, is great. And um, I think it's, it's, it's providing a, uh, some valuable insights in a space that's, that's ultimately I think, underrepresented compared to everything else. I think, I think blockchain healthcare is, is um, underinvestigated compared to other uh, kind of uh, spaces that the blockchain's uh, disrupting. So uh, I look forward to hearing a lot of your, your podcasts to come. And it was great talking to you. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.